Welcome, everybody, to the Too High Podcast. It is me, Seth Galina. I'm alongside Deontay Lee, and we have a special guest with us, Mr. Eric Eager, PFF uh, Head of Research and Development, I'm pretty sure. That it? Yeah, hey guys, it's a lot of fun uh, to join you guys. You guys' podcast is great, and uh, um, it's uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really thrilled to talk football. Uh, so the first thing, you know, this is something you said to me privately, and I, I want you to, I, I'll, I mean, I, I just want you people to know publicly what your thoughts are. You think Kirk Cousins is the best quarterback in Vikings history? And is probably a future Super Bowl MVP. That's right. You said this to me privately, so I just want to make sure that this is that you know what I mean. Like you can't keep this private forever. These are these are good takes, and I think you should you should you, you don't even have to explain them. I think they're real. I have the same takes as well. So just want to make sure. Yeah, the, the mask there. comes off uh, here. <laughs> no, I like I, I think I think Kirk is like a nice little quarterback. I think he's probably like eight. You know, you know eight. And you can like argue who the top seven are, especially in a year where like not that many quarterbacks have played well and none of the rookies have really like lit the lit the league on fire. You can kind of make a case for him. But I mean, Dante, Culpet. I mean, so, well, I'm not old enough to have seen Fran Tarkenton. I'm assuming since he's in the Hall of Fame and he had all the records, he's better than everybody else. No one pre-1993 is a good quarterback, so like... Yeah, yeah. And and obviously Favre played for the Vikings, and he was, you know, wonderful the year they went to the NFC Championship game against the Saints in 09. Um, But Dante was like, you know, if you take Kurt Warner, like, he was like the second best passer in the NFC for like, you know, two or three years, started like two or three Pro Bowls, was throwing for 30 touchdowns, running for 10 you know, had like eight yards per attempt. And I know like one of the years he had Carter and Moss, but then after that it was just Moss. And like Moss was injured for five games the year he threw for 40 touchdowns, you know, and throwing for 40 touchdowns back then was like way better than it is now. And like, I mean, obviously we haven't great gone back and graded those, those seasons, but I would imagine that he would, you know, show out uh, very well given, you know, how good he was. And like, I think he gets, he gets a bad rap because, the year Moss was traded to the Raiders for like a bag of baseballs, he like struggled. And it was like, well, that team, the Vikings, like instead of when Scott Linehan went to Miami, instead of like replacing him, they just used like Steve Loney, who was their O-line coach. They had him coaching O-line and calling plays. And like, I can't imagine that's optimal. So I'm a big time Dante apologist. I know he wasn't perfect. He fumbled a lot, but like he was a damn good quarterback. I said, you know, last week on the podcast, this is my, I'm going to become a Kirk apologist right now. I mean, I already am a Kirk apologist, but last week on I said on the podcast, um, and I made a video out of it and I put it on Twitter about um, Justin Herbert and how he's the only one who can make this certain throw in the league. Uh, this like corner throw that's like not really an option on this, on this, on this, um, on this concept, but he throws it anyways because he's Justin Herbert. And then like two days later, last Thursday night, uh, Kirk Cousins of all quarterbacks made this deep corner throw. Uh, I guess it was to Jefferson. I think he threw it twice. One of them, Jefferson, like barely missed it. Uh, and then I think he hit another one. And I was like, Kirk Cousins of all people. You know how I feel about Kirk Cousins. I love him. <laughs> he's just like, he's just my kind of quarterback. And I know he's not Deontay's type of quarterback. And that's why the two high podcast works, I think. It's just like we have different ideas of what makes a good quarterback. Yeah, sure. I mean, I like talented guys who make, you know, 
aggressive decisions down the football field. I I, well, I, t- I tend to not like stat lines of going 23 or 28 for 192 yards and one touchdown. That that just does not do it for me. Yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, but you're and throwing like, these off really nice footwork though. So, have you considered that? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's always the frustrating thing, too, is like I feel like Kirk has kind of broken our system a little this year. And uh, it's probably time. And I think like the whole league is kind of I know my colleague, our colleague, Timo Risky, looked at like the rate of positive and negatively graded throws are both down this year. And that's mm-hmm. because you've seen all the two high shells and stuff. And, and, you know, quarterbacks are sort of taking what's given to them. You're sort of the whole league is turning into Sam Bradford. Right. And, and it's like oh, I love and it. it's frustrating. <laughs> And, you know, I think most quarterbacks, like you got, you know, Herbert, for example, is probably not content being Sam Bradford. So then he's throwing more into harm's way. And obviously that's going to lead to a worse grade, but probably a better outcome for his team. And Kirk Cousins is more than happy to sort of like be like, oh, I just work here. I'm, I'm putting up my <laughs> stats. I'm getting my KPIs out of the way yep. and uh, I'm going to get my next contract. And I obviously, you know, as anybody who's watched the Vikings closely knows that doesn't necessarily win football games over the long term right like you got to have a quarterback who's willing to who's willing to put losing on the line to to win and you know like Kirk I think is is really good at getting the Vikings to within shouting distance of a win uh just close enough where you can blame somebody else for the loss I think that's kind of how Kirk Cousins ends up playing QB uh you talk about Patrick Mahomes you are you also follow the Chiefs very closely Curious, you know, before we get into the stuff that we really want to talk about here, curious, like, your issues with the Chiefs' offense in terms of, like, you know, where do you, where the fixes do you think they should be? Um, obviously, look, they had this big week against the Raiders. We said it three weeks ago or four weeks ago, whenever it was. Like, let's not, let's not, like, count our chickens before they hatch in terms of, oh, the Chiefs' offense is back because the Raiders' defense just gives them what, exactly what they want. And the Raiders' defense is also just not good. So your thoughts going forward, uh, what, you know, what are the things that you would fix? What are the things that you think they need to fix um, to, to compete again for a championship? Yeah, I mean, this is going to probably surprise you guys, given like my reputation as sort of like an analytics person. Um, but the Chiefs have to just like run the football normally. They have to like stop running RPOs. And they and because if you look at their especially them specifically, their success rate on RPO passes is worse than their success on normal passes, at least the last time I checked. And their success rate on RPO runs is worse than their normal runs. And, and like, I think that that's like something that a normal offense could and should tolerate when there is at least a chance that the linebackers are going to bite on the run stuff on RPOs. But like the backside linebacker, and you guys know this way better than me, but the backside linebacker, against the Chiefs is just laughing at the front fake on RBO. Like right. so, you know, if I'm the Kansas City Chiefs and like the other the other thing is is also um, you know, they need to run under under center more. Um and, you know, I know um let me find this uh this statistic, but like, you know, the the Raiders game where they blew them out, you know, in the forties, uh, and their offense was humming. I don't even think their offense was really humming last week. They had 22 plays under center. It was down to 10 against the Raiders this past week. Um, and then if you look at like RPOs, you know, they they basically, you know, 15 RPOs versus the Raiders, which was, or sorry, uh, yeah, 15 RPOs versus the Raiders. And there was up to 24 against Dallas. Like, again, like I just don't necessarily know if like that is the best offense for them to be running. 
I think they just need to be more definitive, meaning like put them under center, have them, you know, run the football with that good offensive line you have now and, and do quick stuff, do quick stuff to Tyreek, do quick stuff to Travis Kelsey, um, you know, and, you know, there are some good KPIs for this offense. They're the NFL's leader in lowest percentage of contested targets at 8%. No other team. Tampa Bay is, I think, second at like 10 or 12%. So they're doing good things and getting guys open and stuff. But I just think it's the little marginal stuff. And, and part of me believes as a Chiefs fan, like Andy's just saving the good plays for the playoffs. And like there is some math I've done that's kind of proved that to be true in like 2019, for example. But... I don't think that's a satisfying answer right now, given that tonight's game they like is a must win for them. And and do they can they just kind of turn it on? I don't know if the answer to that question is yes. Well, I think that I, I, I kind of find that, I kind of find that to be basically like my my biggest takeaway. And, and Seth and I kind of talked about it last week, where there are some things that you watch this year in their office, and I'm like, hey, where did all that nice fancy motion go? Where did using Tyreek Hill as a decoy go? Where did you know some of the window dressing on some of these plays go? It's just not there. Now, obviously, one thing that we knew last year was that it was very clear that that was a team that was playing in second gear up until the playoffs. Like, there was a certain level of offense that they were just not willing to go into unless the game absolutely demanded it in the regular season. And they were able to operate this, that way last year. I will say with the with the turnover luck or the lack of turnover luck, um, the way the defense played to start off this year and then some of the pressing we saw from Mahomes, and now that I think that things are kind of coming to stasis there, their defense, I think, is regressing back to the mean. Even though we haven't seen the explosiveness from Patrick Mahomes, and I was on the radio with some Kansas City guys, and the one thing I stressed is, you know, for, for everything that I'm saying that's been an issue for them, you know, to your point, Eric, I 100% expect that by the end of this month that they're probably going to have another explosive offensive game as they finish tuning this thing up. And while they may not be the 2019 Chiefs, the 2020 Chiefs, I do expect that we're probably going to be a lot closer to that than the week one through seven Chiefs that we had um, this season. Well, and I think you guys bring up, so this is the, always what I bring up when I talk about the Chiefs relative to 19, because it is similar, right? In 19, the Chiefs gave up a 200-yard rushing game to the Colts, a 200-yard rushing game to Indianapolis, and a 200-yard rushing game to Tennessee. Their defense was in shambles. And then the second half of the year, much like now, they weren't playing great opponents on offense, you know, on defense, I'm sorry. Like, they weren't facing good opposing offenses, and their defense was really rounding into shape. But behind the scenes, and, and that's the same way it's going now. The Chiefs have allowed nine points exactly the last three games. And, but behind the scenes, like, Patrick wasn't being all that effective. Like, when you look at his statistics from 19, so they had, you know, the Chargers were right after the Tennessee loss the, to go to 6-4. and four. Patrick Mahomes' passing yards were 182 175, 283, 340 in the snow against Denver, 251, 174. That's how he finished the regular season. He never had more than two touchdowns in a game um, from the Tennessee loss to the end of the regular season. Um, and he had a few interceptions in there mixed in and a few turnover-worthy plays, in fact, in those games. like he, His statistics weren't that impressive down the stretch of the 19 season either, and they just kind of weirdly turned it on, of course, when they had to against Houston, Tennessee, and San Francisco in, in the playoffs. Like, that's obviously the hope, and, and like, when you look at this team and, and where they started the season, where you ask, like, what was the Chiefs' problem? It's like, where do you start? Their linebackers and defensive backs can't tackle. They can't get a pass rush. They're off, you know, Orlando Brown doesn't look all that comfortable out there. Um, they can't run the football. They can't catch the football. Patrick's not, you know, 
And now it's like, really, it's boiled down now to one problem, right? It's like whether or not Patrick Mahomes can hit open receivers and whether or not those receivers can catch the ball. And I think like that's a satisfying place to be in. I'd rather solve one problem than like seven. Yeah, it's just too bad that, uh, you know, they're on the ropes now, now that they've lost to the Los Angeles Chargers on Thursday night. Um, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I, I, I'll take it again. Um, and, you know, it's great now, you know, we can see how how much is working now that they've had a great day, a great night against the Los Angeles Chargers on Thursday night. Um, and now they're, they're back, you know, first place and everything's looking good again. All right. So we're playing both sides. Before I was going to say that's starts. such a such a veteran move right there. Yeah. And I'm sure he's going yeah, yeah. to send it to our podcast editor and say, hey, make sure we clip that the right way <laughs> at the end of, at the end of tonight's game. Yeah, the second the game after the first quarter, I'll know and I'll just get it to Ryan and I'll make sure we hit it. We hit it right. All right, let's get into the stuff that, uh, like I said, we were going to talk about. You wrote this article, two articles now. Um, one came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago. One came out uh, today on run blocking. Uh, so yeah, to give the people the gist of your article and 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 uh, and, and what it, what it, what it told you or what the data told you. Yeah, as you guys know, like we 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 work with all the teams and like I have these meetings and, you know, we we trying to you know understand the game better and trying to understand sort of like how to team build and stuff. And there was an argument that I was having with somebody who was working for uh, one of the teams. And it was basically this idea of fragility on offense. So the argument for running the football what for, from him was essentially like I just need fewer things to go right. And. I sort of, in my intuition, don't necessarily believe that's true. And and, I that and, true and somebody who, like, and, and I'm not trying to throw this out there. I played the game way back. My last game was in, like, November of 07. So, like, that was that's how old I, I was in college in 07. So it was a long freaking time ago. But, like, I just remember how difficult it was in watching film, and I played tight end, like, just to, like, actually get everybody on the offensive line to to, to execute a play when running the football. And, and and furthermore, I saw the look on my offensive lineman coach face when, like, we did it, right? Like, it would make, like, the guy would swell up, like, like no one, you know, n- nothing else. And so I'm like, and again, like, I'm not trying to, you know, imply, I, you know, maybe, maybe my tweet implied something that was maybe a little too strong, but, like, my idea was, okay, Coaches are clearly not stupid. Coaches are clearly, you know, they know more than I do about the game. But why why is running the football held in such esteem? And I think, obviously, I, it's not the entire answer. But I think part of the answer is when you execute a run play well, there isn't a better play in football. Like, that's what the, the work demonstrated is, like, from an expected points added perspective, from a success rate perspective, if you executed run plays perfectly on the offensive line, you would be the best offense in the entire NFL for the course of a season. Like that, that's it. And so that ideal, like I can't blame a coach for being like, look, I've schemed this thing up really well. And if you execute it, we're, we're going to be good. Right. And like Jonathan Taylor, for example, he averages 10 yards a carry when they block the whole run play up. It's absurd, right? right? Like, right. you know, if you can if you can guarantee that and avoid things like interceptions and sacks and you know all the incompletions even, right? I understand why that's true. And then the issue is is obviously as you guys know from, you know, being coaches and understanding the game, like it's really hard to execute those. And that's why, you know, the 35% of run plays are executed perfectly. 
is why you see still running the football, even though it's high end is way better than passing. It's asymmetrical to a degree and you don't get that high end very often. And so that's why you see passing is a little less uh, volatile from a, you know, perfectly blocked for unperfectly blocked. And, and like it requires kind of less of the offensive line, I guess, because a quarterback can sort of avoid pressure, you know, an offensive coordinator can sort of throw quickly where there aren't really run plays. I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but there aren't really run plays where you can avoid the offensive line, right? The same way that there speed, are pass speed, plays. speed option week. That's the one. That's the Speed one. Option week. There you go. There yeah. You go. Build a whole um, offense out of. <laughs> and so I thought it was a really cool thing because again, like we're trying to understand the game, and we're trying to understand why teams are doing what they're doing. And now I sort of like appreciate. I think, like for example, the Colts. Right. Like I can appreciate the Colts where you watch their film, and you're and like I'm trying to find a clip where like Jonathan Taylor has gets stopped behind the line of scrimmage. And it's actually like really hard because like most of their plays are really well blocked. And I can understand now why that would be an ideal for somebody, right? Like, hey, if I can do this, if I can build an O-line to do that, that does seem reasonable. And um, But the interesting thing is, so to, to go back to today's article, uh, which is on pff.com, running, this is sort of part of the whole like running backs, maybe don't, running the, who the running back is might not necessarily matter as much, whereas how a running back does on perfectly blocked runs is less stable year to year. Meaning like you got, you get guys that get hot in those situations, but it's not repeatable. How well a running back does when it's not perfectly blocked is a trait that a guy has. The issue is, is like, it's, you know, it, it's the weaker of the two plays. And so like with passing, how a quarterback does when the pre when the pocket is clean is his stable metric, right? Like versus where a guy, when a guy's pressured, that's more of his like noisy stuff. You saw that with Herbert. Herbert this year, 5.8 yards per attempt when pressured. Last year was something more like eight, right? And so even though he's a great quarterback, that part of his game is volatile. For running back, the part of the game that's volatile is the part is what happens when you block everything up, which is kind of weird. Um, whereas the stuff that's more stable is the stuff is how he performs when you don't do that. Don't do those things, which you know, sort of curbs the ceiling of how valuable a running back can be as an individual. Yeah, it's funny. I was just watching um, for some other stuff. I was just watching the difference between Zeke and Tony Pollard running kind of the same plays. Obviously, they give certain stuff to, to Pollard and certain stuff to Zeke in that Dallas offense. But like, and I know Pollard, I think uh, at least in one of the two categories turned out to be pretty good in um, in in the article that I read. But, you know, the I, I look at Pollard and I'm like, and Zeke is a really good running back. Like he is. But I look at Pollard and he's making people miss in, in, in the backfield. He's got, he's got, he's good. <laughs> I didn't realize, I just wanted to say that because it's the first time really sitting down and watching him. He's, he's, he's really good. Um, the first thing I want Pollard to say was. Pollard is one of two running backs in the NFL this year that is averaging more than four yards of carry on perfectly, on, on not perfectly blocked plays. The other yeah, one's he, Nick Chubb. At I was going to say the other one is a guy that I think is the best running back in the NFL. Yeah. yeah Nick Chubb, Nick Chubb is. He's like, special. Like, yeah, he, he, I think Nick Chubb is, is, you know, we could talk about, I think Henry matters. I think, I think obviously, you know, I, I think guys like Dalvin Cook and like they're, you know, all those players are really good. I think Nick Chubb is probably the most different running back in the NFL. Like, I think yeah. if you take him off that team, even though Dearness Johnson is pretty, like, it's weird. Like, the, the hard part about running back is 
every one of them is good, almost, right? And like you're the best athlete on your team from like uh, grade Trent six, Richardson eight years old, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and especially growing up like our age, right? Like when you know, like I, I, I was in high school. We ran like the option, but we threw like twelve times a game, right? And you know. Back then, your best player was your running back. And, like, that's the case for a lot of kids growing up still. And, like, that – so, like, it's just really hard to be a bad running back and make it to the NFL. Like, you have so many opportunities to show yourself as being bad. And then, you know, so everybody who's in the NFL as a running back is pretty damn good at the job, you know. And it's and it's very much like – and it's also one of those positions where the learning curve isn't as steep. So it, it's just really hard – to differentiate those guys, but there are some guys who are truly different. And weirdly, I think some of them are ones like Chubb who don't necessarily get like Dalvin cook too, don't necessarily get the biggest um, uh, share when they're in college. Like they're more fresh and they're like better when they get to the NFL. So the one thing I wanted to say with the, you know, you talk about how um, this, like they're like kind of chasing the dragon of execution on a run play. This is something that I don't know if I've talked about it in this podcast, but it's something that I've talked about to, to people in the coaching world and something that I that I find myself doing too much uh, when I was coaching, at least, is that that idea of, well, if we just execute it better, we're good. Like I, you go on the tape and you're like, OK, well, we're running our whatever inside zone, whatever, and we can't get the double team or, or our left guard keeps messing up. And it's like, it's there, guys, guys, it's there. Like it's there. We're If we just if the guard just makes his fucking block, we're there and we, and we're, we can run this play effectively. And that we, we tend to, to I, I know as coaches, because I, I, I you know, Jante, correct me if I'm wrong. And even Eric, you know, you've been around the, the game as well. Like 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 you like the, 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 you know, the story you just told about your O-line coach, like we all get in that mindset. And it's tough to get out of it, especially when you, you were talking like, hey, this is what we've done since, uh, you know, uh, August. You know, we're like, hey, this is we are an inside zone team and blah, 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 blah. And if we just executed everything else in our offense opens up and stuff like that, where it's like, hey, maybe we should just try something else. Right. Like we can't just like focus on this like, hey, we, we can just out execute people when maybe we're just not good at executing this particular player. Maybe our guard is not good at good football player or whatever it might be. So I think that's always something that that gets in the coaches' heads um, that I've seen firsthand, and like like I said, I've been a I've been a uh, I've done myself like I've right. and it, maybe not even in the running game in the passing game too, but just like we get in this in this mindset of being like, hey, we can just if we just execute, if we just execute, and, we're gonna be well, you know, to add to what you were saying, and this is something that Eric and I spoke about right after the first piece he did on on run blocking came out is just like. Also, how this is contextualized by things like injuries, right? Like, and how that can expose different holes in your run game or in your protection scheme, right? Like, when you think about, hey, you know, like a decent offensive line loses its guard. Is that ideal? No. But if your quarterback knows that three or four of your guys are decent blockers and one guy has an issue, you know how to navigate the pocket around that. It's harder to run. You're not really going to be able to be the same kind of successful as a running back if you have to say, hey, this guy, I literally cannot trust myself running behind this guy. And even if I try to get away from him, he's going to lose anyways, right? Like, there's really not, there's not another avenue to your point, Eric, about there's no such thing as we're going to run a bunch of running plays that don't involve offensive linemen. That's, you know, <laughs> that, that's not how the running game is structured. That's not how that works. 
Um, so for that reason, you know, when you start talking about stability and things that you can trust from from, you know, one team or one year to the next, the idea of, you know, as a coach saying, hey, we're running the ball because we feel like less things go wrong. I understand that. And that ties to what you're saying, Seth, about, hey, you know, if we just get this double team or if you just kick this guy out, we're you know, we're out the gate. Um, that's not it's not shown in the data. And when you watch a game, there are so many times where I watch and I'm like, well, if I say 25 times that, hey, if you make the block, it's a good play, then it can't be a good play if you can't ever make the block. <laughs> right. Like and that that's where I think the data, the film, you know, and what we know anecdotally through our experiences all kind of marry together in our understanding of the way the offensive line play works. Well, and, and the interesting thing is, too, is and I, I was talking about special teams today because I think it sort of it, it harkens back to it was like, why don't. Why do why do kick returners kick you know, take the ball out of the end zone? It's like, well, they they're they're only playing five plays and they want to show the coach they're doing something, you know, like and and there's sort of this um, you know opting in, right? And I think that that's also true about like why the run in the pass, right? Because you know if if I if I ask a coach like, hey, what are the keys to the game? And you know if I if Andy Reid comes and's like, well, the the key to the game is Pat making Pat making plays, like. There's, it's probably true, but it's like less satisfying, right? Like if you are an O-line coach and you block up 10 straight passing plays, but your guy's Davis Mills and like you don't get any office, offensive success, to me, I can see the frustration there, right? I can see the frustration with concentrating all the risk on one player or a set of players, right? That That's really what the passing game is doing. And... I think weirdly that's less fragile, right? Because for a run play, obviously, like you said, if the left guard simply can't play that game and we've seen, and we'll talk about the defensive side of the ball, I'm assuming soon, but like if one player can screw up, like I'd, if one player can screw up a run play, that's frustrating and it's fragile. But also like if one player is what's required to make a pass play good, that's probably unsatisfying for a coach, right? Because like it, it takes some of the the you know, agency out of it for for a coach, and I so I can see why passing is also sort of like viewed that way, right? Where it's like, you know, it, it's not as fun, it's not as it's not as um, satisfying when it goes right because That's it's not. really like break it's broken down to just a few things that really like, but it makes it less fragile, right? Like you know, we saw with Kansas City, like it only took it took down to like the 80 percent of their offensive line down, not sixty percent. For them to start to struggle and again like in the run game it's like you know if you're if you get take quentin nelson off the colts it's like it's going to be harder for them like exponentially so and so that's i think that's part of it too but on the flip side that means defensively i actually think like that sort of makes it makes the coverage versus pass rush thing make more sense right because essentially beating one player in the passing game is not enough to cause a, a disruption in the passing game sometimes. Right? We often will, like if you have a guy purely disruptive. But beating one guy in the running game is often enough. And and that's why I think you see some of these defenses forever and ever, they've been really nervous about putting six men in the box and playing coverage. And and now like the the, the few brave souls who have started to do so more frequently, the Brandon Staley's and, and so forth, are not necessarily seeing the huge issues that they thought they'd see because they have disrupted defensive linemen who can make plays and come, you know, make up for the fact there's one less person in the box. Well, th this is the, the, the thing that I want to get to, which is like, okay, 
We understand that running the football is not as efficient passing the football and blah, blah, blah. However, we also are seeing now the um, muted uh, ability of certain quarterbacks and maybe even like you said, the, the, the research that Timo did across the league. If you stop just if you're like, we are not going to run the football, then you get different looks defensively. And especially mm-hmm. on early downs, the Bills are getting all sorts of crazy shit on early downs that defenses are throwing at them because they know they won't run the football. And then you get into this, like, where is the that fulcrum? Where is that? Where is that like tipping point where it's like, okay, well, look, we understand that like running the football, you know, 60% of the time, you know, on, on early downs, not the way to go. However, if we only run it 25% of the time, then we get these crazy coverages on first and second down. And it's, it's just harder on our quarterback. We can't get into our, um, into some of the stuff that we really want to do and create explosive plays. So like, you know, that to me is always going to be the, the one of the main points of the running game. And it's something that honestly me and Deontay have talked about throughout this season. Bill's, are a good example. Uh, I think the Cowboys are a really good example because they've switched up entirely what they do on offense this year. They used to be a spread team. Uh, they were an 11 personnel spread team, three by one. And they were just, hey, Dak, just do it. You know what I mean? Dak, just be, and obviously you have really great receivers, but like Dak, just do it on a good offensive line, but Dak, just do it. And they've become more 12 personnel. They have the two tight ends, my favorite two tight ends in the league. And that's changed. Now they can create more explosive plays. They can do a little more. They even run this. I'm not really into it, but they're even, they put like their offensive lineman at fullback now, which is the thing, whatever. But like, that is that whole like, hey, at least we can, we can pretend like we're running the football enough that gets you in the looks that we want. That gets you to be like, oh my God, I got to put a, I, I just, I, I, I got to put a second safety in, I, you know, the, in the box. I got to spin the safety down. I got to play base. I got to, you know, I got to do a lot of stuff. That's what you're getting. Now, we're getting, the league is changing. Uh, and it, like we've talked about this, you've talked about this, all three of us talked about this. Like the league is changing. Teams are just going to play too high, no matter what now. And that's, that's, and that's where the, everything's going to start to shift back. But I think that to me is where the, the running game does have some merit, where it's like, hey, we're getting good looks in the passing game later. Yeah, and I think that the really cool thing about the NFL and co- and football in general is that there is a breaking point, right? Like that's that's awesome, right? Like if if a hundred percent pass was optimal, right? Like, and there are some people who like I think the prevailing my prevailing answer is they're like, well, what's the optimal pass rate? And I'm like, well, I think it's different for every team, but I think it's higher than the current pass rate for every team. Is like was my answer, you know? And I think. You know, the analytics straw man would say, oh, it's 100%. But like, that's not true. And I think that we're obviously getting to that point where, you know, like, and, and it's really funny, right? Like, the Buffalo Bills are really, like, the classic example. They've optimized to try to stop the Chiefs, and they've optimized to try to be the Chiefs on offense. And you see, like, sort of every team in the NFL, like, evolve to try to beat Kansas City. And on the way there, they're beating Buffalo. You know, like, it's, it's, yeah. it's sort of this weird thing. Um, and, and it's also, you know, one of the reasons – you know, like, at least, like, it is good to, to zig when others are zagging. So, like, you know, the Chiefs, for example, they got Trey Smith, they got Creed Humphrey, they got more physical up front, Joe Tooney. Buffalo's kind of, like, a year behind, right? They're more of that finesse offensive line, and, like, they when they really want to, it's actually hard for them to run the football. That's And they also, like, at yeah. the running back position, sort of selected for, like, if you look at our PFF college grades, Devin Singletary and Zach Moss were, like, the two leaders in broken tackles forced for the, the, the years before they came out, like they really like analytics their way to the running back position 
more so than like the other teams, but like that's caught up to them in the sense of what the Bills really need is a running back, and that's why they played Burita more. What they really need is a running back to bust off a 70-yard gain when another team's in too high against them and just be like, back the fuck off, right? Like, and that to me, like, it's cool. Like, I think that's awesome. I think the fact that the league is evolving and like what becomes the optimum is changing. Um, and, and if you don't adapt to it, you're going to fall behind. And I think the the coolest thing about the 2021 NFL season is that defenses, this is really the defense's year. Like the, the scoring's down and, and, you know, you're really seeing some innovative stuff. And I think it's, it's, it's making the league more interesting in my opinion. No, I agree. I think that, you know, we talk all the time about like the point of diminishing returns with all play calling, you know, offensively and defensively. Um, so to that point about the question about like what's optimum, I agree with you. And my answer would typically be like whatever is necessary to win the football game. Right. Like there are extreme examples. What we saw, you know, a couple Mondays ago with with, uh, with the Patriots and Bills, that's a very extreme example. But that is an understanding of, hey, we've got a thing that works. If that's what's the optimal way to, to win a football game, that's what it is. Um, and, and all this stuff kind of ties into this is what it takes, I think, in order to get a better and clearer understanding of trench play in football, period. You know, that is where when we talk about, you know, what you hear on broadcast or people say, you know, these are the unheralded positions and people don't have an appreciation for how much, you know, influence that these positions have on the football game. Um, and when we talk about, you know, the way that play calling is influenced by what we're seeing, you know, when Seth and I talk about all this too high stuff and we talk about fitting the run at a too high. And the reason why it's important, it's all tied to what you're saying, right? When we talk about like winning these one-on-ones or being able to expose bad blockers, we talk all the time about, well, hey, if I have a defensive lineman that can occupy two guys, if I have multiple of them, that means that I can play more coverage versus, hey, we're smaller up front or we don't have dominating guys. I've got to load the box, right? I've got to try to maximize these opportunities. Um, so that's been kind of the most fascinating thing for me. Yeah, exactly. And like there was an article that we we wrote, you know, on the site like about this time last year, which was like, let's look at how having a dominant interior defender in the run game affects your pass game, right? And it would, you know, it showed like the better the better that player was, the better your nose tackle was, essentially, the fewer men you had to play in the box, and the fewer men you had to play in the box, the better you were in the run in the pass game. And we always think, and again, like you know, every single problem, every single analytical solution to anything in the world, whether that's like biology, epidemiology, all that stuff, football, you sort of solve individual questions first, and then you sort of get into how they're interrelated, right? And sometimes we can make, and, and I, I certainly have been you know, guilty of this myself, you can make like errors and say, well, you know, passing's more efficient than running, so I want my lineman to rush the passer. And it's like, actually... If I could get a defensive lineman who is just an absolute like you know two gap guy who's brilliant there, and he doesn't even need to be that good of a pass rusher because rushing the passer is more of a strong link system than coverage, right? So I'd rather put more numbers into coverage and play the game of and play the game of at least one of these guys is not screwing up, and then I play the game up front whereas at least one guy is going to make a play, right? Like and and that that the nose tackle doesn't necessarily have to be a pass rusher if he's that good at that and you have enough coverage for your other three pass rushers to get home with maybe an extra 10th of a second or something like that. And that's like, you know, that's part of the game of football. That's pretty fun. It's like how all these things work together. So like as a chiefs fan, for example, the first time I ever did 
the PFF draft show. This was 2018. Chiefs took Derek Noddy out of Florida State, and I like threw a Gatorade bottle across the uh, across the set, and I was like, "Why are we taking a nose guard? At, you know, in, th- in the third overall, in third dra- third round or whatever?" And like over time, I've come to like actually really appreciate him because it's like the guy just kind of does. He's not a great pass rusher. He's but he does enough on early downs where it's like they don't necessarily have to be this you know big box team and like you know, he's been useful for them. And so, like, you kind of evolve the way you think based upon sort of, you know, the evidence coming in and our, our increasing ability to synthesize that evidence. I think that's always – that's what's really fun about football to me. Yeah, I mean, this is a discussion that me and Deontay had, I think, two weeks ago or something, where we talked about how we're still in the infant stages in a lot in a lot of the more minute stuff that we want to – that we really want to get into. I know the stuff that, Eric, you, you love getting into – where it's like, yeah, we, we can definitely be like, hey, coaches can should go for it more on fourth down. Uh, you know, coach, go, uh, like you said, um, with the kick returns, like teams should not be taking it out of the end zone. Like these are, these are stuff that, you know, from a macro level, you know, even like just play-by-play data, we can get We can be like, hey, this is probably not a good thing to do. Um, but we get into the charting data and we can really find out stuff like the value of certain positions, stuff like that. The, our, the discussion we were having was how new charting data is. Where it's like, hey, you know, we get play-by-play from, you know, I don't know, when the first year we have, like, really detailed play-by-play, 2000, whatever, I don't know. But, like, in the charting world, I mean, we're, and we're talking 2014, maybe, something like that, uh, 2013, something like that. Um, uh, You know, 2006 with PFF for certain things, but for the real detailed stuff, you know, a little later. And that's going to change, you know, so we, we, we start charting during a certain period of NFL strategy and meta where it's like, okay, well, if everyone's running the same defense, you're going to get this idea that, you know, interior defensive linemen or whatever um, uh, are this type of, are, are this type of valuable. Whereas, Hey, maybe as you, as, as you know, you found now, like, Hey, maybe as the league changes, now we get more charting data where people are playing too high. Hey, maybe, this type of player is more valuable. I think that's super interesting going forward, how we're going to go through certain eras and try and find this ebb and flow and try and find what is obviously with team building and stuff like that and, and coaching in general, it's just like trying to find these out, trying to find these, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, these like undervalued things that become valuable later. So you obviously pay them less and whatever. Well, to me, I think you're going to get a really nice snapshot of that with the draft and Jordan Davis, right? Like the way that people feel about a player like that, with that kind of profile, as somebody who, A, does not play a ton of snaps, right? Because he does not provide a ton of pass down value, right? He's not a guy who's getting after the quarterback, but is still immensely, immensely valuable on rundowns, on early downs. How teams feel about that, considering that we are entering a new era, you know, Five years ago, a guy like Jordan Davis, I could tell you now he's probably going to be a day three guy. Not because he's not valuable, but if you're playing a 4-3 and you want a bunch of guys who get after the passer, you're not going to need that guy unless it's short yardage, right? Like, But now, if you're a Brandon Staley, if you're a Vic Fangio, if you're a Joe Barry, you're building your defense with guys like that in mind. And if you're an offensive coach, you've got to start looking at centers with guys like that in mind, right? Like, we can't have some, you know, quick fleet-footed center, if he's going to be faced off against a 350-pound guy who can bench press him 25 times in his sleep, 
You know, it, it changes the context of that, which then obviously influences the way the play calls work, the results of those play calls, and then ultimately the kind of conversations that we have like this, where we're trying to figure out, okay, where is the league at now? What do these plays mean? What are the results of these plays saying about the rest of the NFL or college football or football in general? And how that influences like where the value is for players, for teams, and how we prognosticate what the next three to five years look like. Because as we said, Seth, 2025 rolls around, we might not be talking about quarters coverage at all. It may be here and gone just that quickly. It's just two steal every play. That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it, uh, uh, before we get into the next uh, topic, Eric, anything you'd like to add here? No, I think I think what you guys are saying is is great, and it's and football is already a small data problem, right? And so, you know, what we want to do is you know take the biggest data set possible and and glean from it, but in reality, like again, it's why building from first principles is important, you know, like, um, and it's why you know we have to you know we have to have some humility when when approaching these problems because it like like you said you guys have said it's like it's changing and things are going to change. Last year. I mean, Don, Deontay talks about, um, you know, uh, Jordan Davis. Like, they had no – there was no defensive tackles taken in the first round of this year's draft. None. And, like – and it'll probably not be the case anymore, you know, because we, we – you know, no safeties were taken in the first round of this year's draft either. But I could tell you my – I think safety is one of the more undervalued positions in football. So, like – and especially if you're going to play some of that, like, the too high stuff, not only do you need guys with range, but you need guys who can come into the box – you know, if a team like reduces down on you or something like that. So like, again, all this stuff is going to evolve interestingly. Yeah. I mean, I look, I, the Rams defense this season, obviously a lot has changed new defensive coordinator and stuff like that. I think losing John Johnson is a big deal. Like that is, that was such an important position in that specific defense. And they haven't found a guy Their safety play is like, okay. I find this year um, just in general. So like that, that, yeah. John Johnson was a big deal for them. And Troy Hill, too, on the corner, too. But, like, um, yeah, I thought John Johnson was a big deal because it's so important to have a guy who can kind of be both in the new NFL. Um, be a deep half player, maybe be a center fielder and sometimes, and then also be able to come down into these light boxes where you're not going to be protected um, and, and try and make a play in the run game. It's really difficult. And, like I said, John Johnson was really good. Uh, okay, uh, you wrote a paper, uh, you and your team, I should say, wrote a paper uh, for Sloan, the analytics conference, sports analytics conference that I read. It's fascinating. Uh, you basically broke it up into three different uh, issues, I guess, uh, that you saw. And uh, yeah, let's start with the first one was like pass rush, which is, oh, anyways, go ahead. I, I don't want to go. Yeah, ahead. yeah. So this is, this made it to the second round of the Sloan um Sports analytics. We'll, we'll see if it makes it through. I know it, it's a big, you know, it's a it's a difficult competition. Plus, you know, uh, you know, there's only I think one football one that makes it every year. So we'll see. Um, but but yeah, I mean, we took the the tracking data, so the the NGS data that we get um, as a part of our deal uh, with teams, and we looked at how fast a, a pass rusher gets off the ball. And I think like, you know, low low hanging fruit there, right? It's actually pretty easy to measure how how fast a guy gets off the ball. Um, and it was, it was a tough, you know, sledding because pass rush grades and pass rush pressures and stuff like that, some of our most reliable data, like what I'm actually like pretty, you know, pretty convinced that if I know a guy's 
athletic measurables. And I know uh, you got you know, our friend, Mutual Justice Mosqueda, you know, showed this, I think, four or five years ago. Why do, why do we always talk about justice on this? Every episode, a good, we he's talk a about good justice. football it's be- mind. It's because he well, is entirely too online. That's the issue. <laughs> yeah. But he, he, he wrote, you know, and, and this is true, like edge players, if you, the, the combine data is the most valuable, for the, the position for which combine data is the most valuable is edge. It, it, you know, it's a very, it's a very uh, acute problem. Can, are you big, fast, and strong? That, that contributes to playing the position. And then, you know, are you productive? And, and there are some players who aren't productive um, that end up being okay, like uh, Dafe Away and Danell Hunter and guys like that who are freak athletes. Um, and then if you have both, obviously, you're going to be picked in, picked in the top 10. Um, and, and you're going to be pretty good, generally speaking. Um, but one of the things I wanted to say is, okay, can we get a time-varying measure of how athletic a guy is? And so if you measure how fast the guy gets off the ball using the NGS data, you can increase your ability to predict sacks or predict pressures by a significant amount. And so one of the things I wrote about in the paper was doing that and, and, you know, finding, you can find out when a player is slowing down. You can find out when a player is sort of underrated. I I know uh, Tyus Bowser for the the Ravens was a a player who, you know, the Ravens do a lot of this work themselves. But he was a player where, you know, when they let Matthew Judon go, when they let Yannick Ngakwe go, it was like, well, who's going to step in? It was like, well, Tyus Bowser actually, like, performs really well in all these metrics, and, and he'll be fine. Like, you could pay him $6 million a year, and he'll he'll do the job. And Adafi Owe was another example of a player who has that kind of athleticism. And so that was, like, a really fun thing. The, the second thing we worked on is basically measuring how the propensity for a linebacker to bite on play action. So, so you essentially you can look at, and it's all the things you guys know. It's like proportion of time a, a team runs outside zone, uh, inside zone, power counter man, um, what down and distance is it, uh, what's the score of a game. And you can sort of figure out, okay, what's the distance a guy is going to bite on play action on average? And then what does a, you know, what, how often does a guy do it and how far does he bite uh, in the wrong direction on average? And, and we found that that also increases your ability to predict um, you know, how good a player is in coverage year to year. So that, that was a pretty fun uh, exercise. on the. So those are two on the defensive side of the ball that were pretty pretty cool for us. And it's funny you say that because when I when I first came across Justice's horse player stuff and I was asking him, like, how stable he thought it would be across different positions, the first thing I thought about was, well, if I'm looking at corners and you try to use a combine for that, you're never going to know who's good because they're all the same size, they all weigh the same, and they all run four fours and four fives. You're never going to know from that. But to your point, you know, if you have more of that kind of like tracking, you know, biomechanic, you know, tracking data that you can rely on in a game situation, you might be able to find out like, okay, this guy can actually start and stop better than others over a more consistent period of time than trying to take it from, you know, uh, the short shuttle you know, or even the the full-on pro shuttle, Um, things like that. You know, how does a guy turn his hips? How does he play in the air? You know, how does he play, you know, running at certain angles versus coming downhill? There's a lot of value in that for these positions where there is a more, I guess, kind of cookie-cutter template in terms of body type and athletic profile outside of edge rushers, like you said, where you can get an edge rusher anywhere from six foot one to six foot six and 230 pounds to 275 pounds. And you've got to be able to take their body density and, you know, their mass and then mix that with 
How well do they run? What's their 10 yard split? What's their 40 yard dash? What's their three cone time? You know, and then trying to project all of that. And then when you add in the added value of what you were saying with the NGS data and, and these other companies that work in that realm, seeing like, okay, this is how quickly it takes this guy to get out of his stance and get his second foot in the ground. Oh, well, that's like, you know, he's a full standard deviation away from the average in this draft class. That's an immense amount of value, you know, in terms of trying to predict how productive a guy is going to be. And you can use that as a point of reference with other guys in the NFL, right? This guy's much closer to Chase Young than he is to Chase Winovich, right? So now we feel very, we can feel very confident that if we pick this guy, you know, we can make something happen. Or a guy who went to, you know, the University of Akron or whatever actually has all these biomechanical metrics that say that he's really close to being, you know, a tier two type of pass rush guy, but people haven't seen him because he hasn't been in a high profile setting. You know, we may be able to find value in that way. So to your point, you know, what you worked on with that Sloan paper, there is, I think, a a whole gold mine of data that we can probably take for these guys and their athletic profiles that even something like the combine can't properly illustrate. Yeah, the the combine, to your point about corners, it's like even when you get a guy who's not like fast, like you you get all this like survivorship bias, right? Like so you you might look at like corners 40s and say oh 40 40 yard dash doesn't matter for corners because look at all these players but all the players who are slow 40 guys that still make it to the league they made it to the league because they're good at corner right so like we we ignore all these 4 6 guys who stunk and played for you know uh ECU or something like that and like we only look at the guys who had you know like uh we only look at the guys who somehow figured it out without that speed or their speed at the combine wasn't reflective of their actual ability. And we can sort of measure that better. Or the other thing is, is we can find out where that's happening, right? Like we can find out like, Hey, this guy stands straight up out of his, out of his stance, but he has a great bend or something like that. Or this guy shoots out really quickly and he might not have as good a bend, but like you sort of can also do a better job of finding out like how a guy wins, you know, more acutely than, you know, charting data or combine data could, um, and, and we saw that. So the other, the third one we did was wide receiver speed, which is basically using the PFF grades to look at guys on eight routes and nine routes and say, you know, how does the speed translate to grades? And, and so like, my thing is, is you can be fast. You can be John Ross, you can be, um, Troy Williamson, but like, if you can't have the body control to make plays when the ball's in the air, like your speed's sort of useless. Right. And, but if you do, like that, that's the speed I want. And, and so, you know, you have some guys who like Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay is as slow on the field as he is in the 40. Like he is. He's just, and that's why he gets no separation. And, you know, he's a good receiver and stuff, but like he does it differently. But like a guy like Marquez Valdez Scantling actually uses his speed really well in the field. And you can measure that and like actually understand that using this sort of analysis. And that's where like the PFF data and the, you know, the, the tracking data really comes into play because. You, you know, we do measure like how good a guy is on the field. And we have sort of these labels that re- are really helpful versus just like raw tracking, you know, which is useful, but probably more useful when paired with, you know, the scouts notes and things like that that we have. I was thinking about cornerback recently. Uh, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like like the measure of a good corner is like how good you are at recovering from whatever has happened whatever's happened, uh, you know, up to that point. Cause I'm like, you know, obviously like you talk to corner coaches or, or, you know, secondary coaches, whatever DCs, 
you know, they'll talk about you got to go to checklist and like, hey, when the receiver gets to this depth and we get to the next depth and there's certain things are going to happen and you, you kind of like cross things off the checklist. But at the end of the day, a lot of cornerback play is is educated guessing on the, what you're about to see, what their receiver is about to do. And you're going to be you're wrong like a lot. Um, maybe, maybe you know, my, my time playing, you know, flag football cornerback, maybe I was wrong more than other people. But what cost me the most was that I can't recover. Because I'm a slow piece of shit. And it's like all the good ones, I feel like, A, they're, they're probably A, guessing correctly most of the time. Obviously, that makes you a good corner. But then, again, educated guesses. But then the best ones recover and make it seem like they didn't they didn't make the mistake in the first place. I don't know. Am I out there? Like I, I no, can't tell I, if I'm right or wrong with this I, stuff. I actually have a, an analogy, I think, for you. Because like... So our colleague Ben Brown is a, he's my betting partner. We we do a lot of that stuff together. And I've always said that Ben's a better better than I am. Like I think I make better like I probably am, have better models and stuff. But Ben has this gambler mentality in him where he's not afraid to fire and he's not afraid mm-hmm. to lose and he's not afraid to and I think like and whereas I'm I'm getting better at that but I'm certainly like more cautious. And I think at a cornerback position, you have to have that confidence. And it's also why, like, our grades for corners are so streaky. Because you do have these, like, mental, like, time periods where you just can't win. You're getting beat. And, like, it's also really dependent upon how physically well you are. And so if you're going through a right. season and you're injured, like, you're just – like you said, the recovery speed might be a tenth of a second off and all this stuff. To be a great corner, in my opinion, in the NFL, you, did, you need – to be like a gambler, like in the sense of you need to be willing to take chances, you need to be willing to get beat, and you need to be willing to forget your wins and your losses, which is like what a good gambler does. And I think like that is a really rare trait. And I think like when you think about a guy like Richard Sherman or Deion Sanders or, you know, like Champ Bailey, those guys, it's like, you know, like, it's weird, but like the way they talk, you're like, are you insane? And it's like, no, like this is actually the mentality you need to play corner in the NFL. Like you need to be a little bit, you need to be a little bit forgetful about what just happened. And I think that, you know, that that's part and parcel with what you're saying. I think. I'm, D, am I right? D, am I, am I wrong? I've never played corner in my life. So no, I, I do think that, I do think that what you guys are saying has a lot of value. I mean, I can say, you know, completely anecdotally that the number one thing I try to liberate corners to do is to take those chances. Um, And my reasoning is always like passing is passing is too efficient of a play to just say, Hey, I'm in the right spot. (laughs) You know, what does that do for me? If you're just in the right spot more times than not, but we're, but they're still completing passes. That's not value, right? Like it's, it doesn't work that way. It's not the same as being a defensive lineman where I can tell them, Hey, if we end up with a play where my best pass rusher is on their running back, even if the quarterback gets the ball off, that's production for you. You did your job to a degree, you know, it, it, because it's so results based at that position, you kind of do have to be a gambler type. Um, and, and to the point about like trying to figure out what the difference is between like athletic profiles and production and all of that. One of the things that I've always found so fascinating with wide receivers, you know, to your point about the, all this tracking data is because of most of these guys are fast. The thing that has separated these speed guys is for a guy like Tyreek Hill that his deceleration plane is way slower than any other guy that has comparable speed. That's why it looks like he's so much faster than everybody else. 
his peak speed may not be, you know, a full standard deviation above what, what else you would see in the NFL from a speed perspective, but he decelerates at such a slow degree that he's able to create extra separation. That's a lot of value as a wide receiver. Um, and I think that the Chiefs were really good at finding guys like that. Sammy Watkins is like another guy like that. You know, when he was at Clemson, when he was 100% healthy early in his career, you could tell like his top speed he maintains in a ways that other guys can't. And I think that there's a lot to be found in in positions like that. You know, to your point about linebackers and how well you bite and how well you can recover from biting and how sustainable that is in showing like, okay, we need not only does that show we have a good or a bad decision maker, we have a guy athletically that if he's a step off can get back in the right position. Or if he's a step off, it does not come at the cost of the entire defense. Um, so I am interested to see over the next half decade, hopefully this stuff continues to proliferate and we're able to use that to create more stable projection models for guys in the NFL and going from college to the NFL. And that's also going to help us, I think, with understanding injuries and recovery data and what that means on a game to game basis as well. Um, so it, it is a lot in the there's a lot of that that's in the weeds, but there's a lot of value to be found in that type of data. Yeah, there's like a, an athletic arrogance that I think you have to have to play some of these positions, right? And like the one guy that always shows up in the tracking data, and I know he's like a, you know, he's, he's a very polarizing figure at this point, but like Antonio Brown always struck me as somebody that like never wasted motion as a receiver. And there there's an aspect of that in Tyree Kill as well. Um, to your point, like it's just somebody who, like when they make a cut, it's sort of or they they track they move to track the ball. There's just it's just optimal, right? It, it's just you know you're you're sort of finding that that way. And you know Antonio Brown might not have had the fastest forty coming out of college, but like when the ball's in the air, I don't think there are players that are catching him, or or there are players that are you know gaining ground in him. And and there's that aspect too. And like you know it, again, it, it's it's having confidence in your own athletic ability that I think is a big edge that like obviously we can't measure directly, but we can try to measure indirectly on the field. The Too High Podcast is, of course, brought to you by Western and Southern. Want a chance to win the ultimate game day feast, whether it's football success or financial savvy. Winning starts with asking us questions. Would you like to know what it's like behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Western and Southern is teaming up with PFS very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Unfortunately for me, my fantasy season ended a long time ago. Every submission earns you a chance to win the ultimate feast to celebrate football's favorite Sunday. We'll cover your catering up to $2,500, coordinate your order from a restaurant near you, and have it delivered on February 13th, 2022. And don't forget to check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Oh my God, I was so close. Submit your questions at westernsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is Western and Southern dot, sorry, westernsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Also, the Too High uh, podcast is obviously presented by uh, Pro Football Focus. Uh, and you can go on pff.com and put in the promo code Too High, T-W-O-H-I-G-H, for 25% off any PFF subscription. You guys know what you get there. Locked out of content, uh, cultural betting dashboards, grade power projections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Support the pod. Promo code too high, T-W-O-H-I-G-H for 25% off um, all subscriptions. Okay, 
Let's get into the the happenings uh, of the current NFL season. Uh, I, we, honestly, we have to start. We should probably should have started with this. But Urban Meyer is not the coach of the Jaguars anymore. Quick thoughts. I mean, this was going to happen. Um, quick thoughts from you, Eric. Um, this is was obvious. And yeah, I, I was like, I thought having guys like Bevel and Schottenheimer were going to help, but like me too. But you know, it, it wasn't even like. You hire the racist strength coach. You fire the racist strength coach in like 48 hours. You hire a director or like a VP of analytics, Kareem Kasim, And then like you draft a running back in the first round and he quits the next week. Like Tim Tebow thing was also a joke. Um, you know, there was some like galaxy brain things that I was convincing myself of. It's like, oh, look, Trevor Lawrence isn't like the main attraction here. Maybe he'll do well because he doesn't have any pressure on him. And of course that was wrong. Like... Yeah, the whole thing sucks, you know. Like, and I, yeah, and, I and I hate, you know. There are obviously going to be players now, who, you know, who are going to be behind on their learning curve and things like that because of this. So that's kind of the worst part about this: the fact that he couldn't win in an AFC South, which is like kind of a joke, um, is also a pro- like there were so many ways that he could have succeeded, and of course, like he just continued to step on his own junk the whole time. So. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this is the last that we'll see of him, but I, I, I'm assuming that's not the case. To me, I, I boil this thing down. For all of those things, I obviously knew that this was not going to be successful, but the one thing that I thought put the nicest stamp on my prediction that this was going to fail was the day that I saw that Carlos Hyde was going to be on that roster. I was like, oh, he has no idea what's <laughs> coming his way in the NFL. Um but yeah, I mean, all this stuff is predictable. It's honestly beyond, you know, any level of analysis. You know, it's not really necessary. I think everybody saw exactly how this was going to go. And I think I said this last week when we had Richard on, right, that this is one of the rare occurrences where a coaching tenure was predicted to fail and it failed in the exact ways that everybody predicted that this thing would fail as it was supposed to happen. That was That's the thing that blows me away. And to your point, Eric, the, the biggest takeaway for me is like, how horrible this must be for Trevor Lawrence, right? And for the young guys that are on this roster. How do you go and rebuild the goodwill that you did not have in the first place? This is Jacksonville we're talking about. It's not like anybody was ever clamoring to go there, you know, to begin with. Uh, their success has always been drafting and developing because they're not going to be a free agent destination. And this, you know, unfortunately, the stink now is going to be carried through the rest of the organization because at the end of the day, the decision to bring the guy in in the first place was Shad Khan's. This guy, this is not like a guy, this was not a guy who was walking in with the highest profile in the world, you know, when he got the job in the first place. Nobody in the NFL was really clamoring to hire the guy anyways. Um, so I, I hate it for their young guys. I was a big fan of Trevor Lawrence, still am, was a big fan of Travis Etienne. We'll obviously see how he looks coming off of the injury, you know, and, and I would hate to see that a draft class where you walk away with, you know, what everybody, almost everybody unilaterally believes is a quarterback who can be a Hall of Famer if you just don't trip over yourself. And they, and they, might, act, they might actually have ruined the most, you know, what I said, the most unfuckable situation on the planet. Yeah. Byron Leftwich, next next coach. Just to just to rebuild. First of all, I think Leftwich is a good coach, and then just to rebuild the positivity. You know, bringing back a guy who everyone loves. Who that is the goodwill hire. That would be the goodwill hire. Yeah. I, I think that's the way to go. I don't know. Yeah, I think offensive coach put him with Trevor. Like you know. Yeah, and he he is somebody who 
you know, Leftwich actually has experience that is, you know, underrated. So like he was in Arizona and then he was in Tampa and then he was, you know, he's, he's been part of like a good, a good, a good team, a bad team, right? He's had Winston, he's had Brady, um, you know, so like there are, he, I think he's underrated as a prospect. I even put him and I know like my play caller rankings get, you know, get ratioed up and up and down uh, at times. But like I had him as one of the better play callers last year. I even thought Tampa did better than the talent that they had um, play for play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he's obviously a big part of that. Um, so, yeah, he would be great. I mean, obviously, um, you know, it, it's hard. And like, you know, luckily for them, this is the first year where you can interview head coaching candidates in the final two weeks of the season. So like they're at least getting out ahead of that. And I do think that that's a, an underrated part of this season that's different than other years that, that they do get to get out ahead of this. And they could interview somebody who's on a team that's winning like Leftwich with Tampa or BNME with Kansas City or, you know, you know, another good candidate like that. Like, so, yeah, I it, it's it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for Khan to say, hey, I was – I was lying back then, but now I'm telling the truth type of thing. I mean, they've already overlooked a, a decent amount of good candidates to put in Urban, you know, for no freaking reason. So it, it's going to take a while. And they've only had one season with more than six wins in the last 11 years. So they, he's got a lot. I mean, there, there's, a, there's no authority in that building right now. Okay, I asked you guys to pick um, the team in each conference that is either six, seven and six or six and seven right now that you feel like could make a run in the playoffs, uh, could a, a make the playoffs and then make a run in the playoffs. Uh, so let's, I guess we'll start with the uh, AFC. Sure. Uh, six and seven or a seven and six team. Eric, you're on the clock. Yeah. I think for, for my money, it's the Colts. I, I like, you know, obviously, you know, how well Frank Reich has done with Carson Wentz. Um, I'm a big fan of Matt Eberflus and like what he can do with a defense that doesn't necessarily have the most talent in the world. And I think much like the Titans in 19, they can be, I don't think they're a team that can win the Super Bowl necessarily, but I do think they're a team that can make life really hard on a favorite, you know, much like Tennessee, you know, went into Baltimore, or sorry, went into New England, then won, went into Baltimore and won in 19. I, I think the Colts are good enough to sort of do that. And I think Wentz, you know, it, ha- it has, Wentz isn't a great quarterback, but he has talent. And I think him paired with, with Reich is perfect. Uh, you know, to be a spoiler in, in January. So that, that'd be my AFC team. Dude? Um, I would go Colts. Like, the Colts have, have been the team that I've been kind of being banging a drum for, you know, that stuff for, like, the last few weeks or so. I think that, you know, with, with Eric picking them all, I will throw another team in there, that being the Bengals. And a lot of that is just, like, big play var- variants for me. You know, if you're not going to be the team like the Colts where they can run the ball, they can control possessions. When they don't turn the ball over, they are they are a high-level team. They have a sneaky good run defense. You know, Quiddy Pay has added a lot for them. Matt Eberflus has obviously been very good year over year with protecting some of the talent gaps that they've had defensively. So I'm very confident in them. And then when I look at the Bengals, I'm looking at a team that can burn as hot as any team in the NFL when they're rolling, you know, and – You know, I think that even with them kind of evening out in terms of their data week over week this season, I think the fact that they found a little bit of a run game with Joe Mixon again has added another dimension for them that makes me feel confident that I think that in a playoff setting, they will score. Now, what they get from their defense is obviously going to be, you know, kind of on a week by week basis for for me. But 
what I've seen from them offensively this year, if they're not turning a football over and they can run the ball, they can beat any one of these teams, um, home or road, in my opinion. Yeah, the, the Joe Mixon leads the NFL in, in yards gained on not perfectly blocked runs. I think that's a testament to how sort of tough of a runner he is, uh, especially mm-hmm. that offensive line. Riley Reef just went on IR. Um, they're, they're probably going to need him to play that well. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I was going to say – I was going to say the Bengals too, because I because Joe Burrow is the best quarterback in the league, um, and the other team that's kind of a cop out, and we all kind of said this before the show, it is kind of a cop out. But the Bills are seven six. They have the mo- they have the most high end talent out of any of the six and seven seven six teams on probably either conference. Um, so there obviously would be the pick though. They're going to have to go on the road now uh, at this point, um, probably for certain in the. Uh, in the first two rounds, I guess, all three rounds, I guess. So that w- that's going to be tough for them. But obviously the high-end talent, the variance for them is is to be the best team in the league or to to look like they did against Jacksonville a few weeks ago and only score six points. Like there's obviously those two sides of the coin, um, the, what Buffalo does on offense. Uh, but I do think it's kind of a cop-out, so I'll just say the Bengals. All right, NFC, Eric? Yeah, this one's tricky. I- yeah, this is a tough one. Um, it's hard, but I, I'll say <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw out. I'm not going to do San Francisco. I feel like that's the easy answer. I'm going to say Philadelphia. I think the Eagles, you know, have do enough. Th- like I've actually like been really impressed with Nick Sirianni. Like I thought he was just kind of like a oh we fired our coach late than later than everybody else did. This guy's going to be a one year guy. He's going to eventually get out of there. I do think their defense is like as lazy, lazily like uh, called as any in the league. Like no stunts, no man coverage, mm-hmm. no, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. Like I feel like it, they leave a lot on the plate there. But like, you know, Jalen Hurts is playing wonderful football most games. Um, there are two wide receivers. I think Rager will eventually emerge and be okay. Uh, and Smith has played wonderful. Goddard's Oof. great. Um, and then both offensive and defensive lines can really like bloody the other the other team's nose. Um, they have a big game though. Like if they don't beat Washington this week, like basically whoever wins that Washington Philly game is in the driver's seat for the last playoff spot in the NFC. Um, right. So, you know they they have to win this week to sort of keep that 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 dream alive. I think uh, for me, if it's not going to be the that was a team I was actually really intrigued by is the Eagles. Um, I'm not going to pick the 49ers for the same reason that you're not picking the 49ers. So I will go with the Minnesota Vikings. Um, again, same same kind of formula that we're talking about with Indianapolis, right? Control the ball. They have a great running back. You know, what we talked about with running backs that can create after, you know, after contact or, you know, on imperfectly blocked run plays. They have a guy in that with Dalvin Cook. Um, and they have maybe my favorite receiver in the NFL and Justin Jefferson, and he's one of those game-breaking types of receivers. And I know that sometimes it can feel like lazy analysis to say, like, hey, the good player can end up winning you a big football game. But there is something to the fact that, like, in an environment like that with their style of play, I would ex- I would expect in a playoff scenario that, you know, for them winning a football game, it would look like Kirk Cousins only throwing the ball maybe 21, 22 times and trying to force feed, you know, those deep overs, those uh, corner routes you know, those vertical balls to a guy like Justin Jefferson, and he is good enough to get some separation and create offense. They were able to do that against Pittsburgh last Thursday night. 
Um, and I think that even against a better defense than the Steelers, you can see I, I can envision an, an opportunity for them to be able to manufacture just enough explosive offense to tie in with their ability to be efficient on the run game to be able to beat an NFC team, you know, on the road. Now, it wouldn't be everybody. I, I wouldn't pick them to beat the Packers. I don't know if I'd pick them to beat, you know, the the Rams, but I think they're good enough to to sneak a team like the Cardinals, which is something that they've done already, you know, this year. They were able to really run the ball, you know, at will on the Cardinals earlier this season, even though they lost that game. I, I can imagine the fact that they'll still be a, a, able to do that later on this season. Yeah, so like I think the Vikings, 49ers, are, like like you said, like kind of really good teams that haven't performed as well. Probably, I like the Eagles thing, and it reminds me of like the way that they've kind of transformed their offense to to suit Jalen Hurts more and his ability to run the football. And we can we saw games, and the Saints game is such a good example of that, where it's like, hey, like what we're doing schematically can win, can win a football game um, if you're going to do certain things against us and we have this extra player, uh, extra runner player as uh, that Jalen Hurts is. Obviously, the other team, the New Orleans Saints, they're going to make the playoffs, they're going to win the Super Bowl. How they're going to do that is the same way, like the, honestly, the, the same way that the Eagles do it. You put Taysom Hill at quarterback. But you run, a, you run that type of offense. You run a triple option type of offense with them, which is not what they do. You know, they, they, they'll run quarterback power, but it's, there's not a lot of read aspects to it. They will go under center a ton and try and run play action to get some deep shots. And Hill is just, it's not good. So, like, I think the Saints want to, because they don't want to waste this unbelievably good defense they've had this year. You know, Simeon might be an answer for like a game, but if you really wanted to go further in the playoffs, I think you got to put that Eagles type of offense with triple option type of offense with Taysom Hill. You got to start running RPOs. Like Sean Payton won't run RPOs. Like I get it, you had you had Drew Brees, but now you're a different quarterback. So, yeah, I think doing that would help them um, help them get to the next level. Uh, obviously, we're saying. Let me go look at the standing. Like the the Falcons, we don't believe in. No. Washington, we don't believe in. Uh, those are the other two, six and seven. The teams. Washington has all those, both both Atlanta and Washington have ridiculous negative point differentials. The Falcons <laughs> last year were minus eighteen point differential, or four and twelve. This year they're minus one hundred eight, six and seven somehow. Like it's it's honestly the biggest enigma. It's bad. But if the Falcons win this week, like this is the crazy thing: the Falcons go to San Fran this week and win somehow. They find a way. God's light somehow shines on them, and they win that game. They're they're in the playoff race, right? Like they're they're tied with San Francisco. Right. They have they have a, a tiebreaker. They have the tiebreaker. Yeah. On it, so right. it, it's it's crazy, but yeah, I, I don't really believe in them as far as I can throw them. But they do have this game coming up in San Fran. I believe they have Saints at home week week eighteen. Like they have some games that they can win. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to see them winning much more in the couple games the rest of the year. The, the only thing I'll say with Atlanta is like. They have the best quarterback out of Washington, Philly. I mean, we talked about how good Philly can be in certain ways. Um, but 49ers, Vikings, Saints. I would I would say Matt Ryan is the best quarterback out of that I would imagine. I would say the he, trade-off there is just the literally all 52 yeah. other guys on the yeah. roster. <laughs> That's bad. Um, and then Washington, not feeling them. I watched Heineke actually for like the first like real time, like really watching him against the Cowboys. And... Uh, Nah, That's nah, it. just nah. 
no. it's not going to work out it's there. It's not it. Um, all right. I, I think we're done here. Um, Eric, this was a, a pleasure. Um, we'll have to have you back on. Uh, this is actually your third time on the Too High slash PFF College Football Podcast. Um, so we'll have to have you back on again because this was a pleasure. Um, and yeah, thank you. Um, obviously, go. F- I don't have to. Uh, you want to plug yourself? Yeah, I PFF mean, forecast yeah, the, pff.com. Yeah, this is this has been a lot of fun, guys. You guys are, you know, um, you know, the, I think the popularity of your show speaks uh, speaks for itself. Um, yeah, I mean, pff.com. Uh, George George Shahuri and I host the PFF forecast every Wednesday night, every basically Monday morning after all the games. Um, yeah, that, that, watch us there after you get done watching the Two High show. All right, see you guys.